שיעור מספר 194 של רבי דוקטור יונתן פיינטוך, The Lord killeth and maketh alive, a rabbinic reading of biblical tests. I want to start with a short introduction before we dive into the sources here. The past few years, maybe past few decades, have seen uh, what some people call revolution, revolution of uh, learning Tanakh, revolution of Pshat, uh, which brought awareness to uh, the fact that we can actually examine the psukim, the verses, the words, uh, with the naked eye, and discover new themes and new ideas and new meanings and new messages, which are embedded in the psukim themselves and not through the interpretation of the Midrashim. Sometimes these Sukkim were read only through that, through those eyes of the Midrashim and of Chazal. And at least in these circles, nobody tried to say that we were casting the Midrashim aside and not looking at them anymore. But you do get the feeling that uh, these uh, Midrashim were... Um, pushed aside a little bit, a little bit uh, uh, left on the side, and the emphasis moved to, uh, at least in these Yimeyun, in Herzog, in other circles, to Pshat, and to reading the Psukim, and, uh, which are very fruitful approaches, all the literary approach to, to Tanakh, which has uh, uh, many innovative results. Um, but it may be time, after a while, and I think this so-called revolution, you, can, you may say it succeeded, so maybe time for the next revolution, which would be maybe going back to the Midrashim or allowing them to resurface, okay? Uh, um, or uh, at least we should uh, uh, ignore them less. Now, the question is, do these Midrashim belong to the study of Tanakh? And that depends on the approach that we take to the Midrashim, how we read them, whether we approach the Midrashim as self-confined ideas, which were actually connected or pasted to the Psukim in different places, but aren't really an attempt to read those Psukim or to interpret them. And that is one approach. It exists. And some people approach the Midrashim like that. And uh, we need to remember that many of these midrashim historically were given as oral drashot in front of an audience. And so the darshan many times would use the psukim in order to uh, convey his ideas at the time um, on any, anything happening, on politics, on history, on stuff that, on chinuch, uh, of course, and, and, and that's legitimate. But there's a, another approach which says it's true that Midrashim are not exactly pshat, are not uh, necessarily the, the, the simplest meaning of the words of the, of the psukim. However, that doesn't mean that they are just artificially connected to the psukim. On the contrary, the Midrashim have a very live dialogue with the psukim according to this approach. And they are actually... Um, a different reading of the psukim, not the same reading of the pshat, not the, the simplest 
reading of the words. But if you uh, are willing to accept certain, uh, um, if you're willing to, 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 to accept uh, uh, certain rules or, or a certain, uh, um, if you're willing to, to uh, uh, look at the Midrashim and see the way in which they read the Psukim, you will find that they are indeed reading the Psukim. They're not ignoring the Psukim. Okay, and they are there, and we can really see them as a new, innovative reading of the Psukim, which again is different from the way you would read them without the Midrash, but it is definitely in dialogue with the Psukim. And that's what I would like to show today, and we will be looking at a few Midrashim on one specific story, the story of Hana at the beginning of Shmuel, Hana and Shmuel. Okay, we will look, we will look at uh, a few psukim in the Midrashim on them. And I will try to, to show that uh, these Midrashim are not, even though at first glance they may seem to be ideas which are very interesting in themselves, but not necessarily arising out of the psukim. And we will try to see how, uh, if we look at them again, we may see how they are actually a very interesting reading of the psukim, just in a different manner. So uh, I would like to start not with the first example here, but uh, um, with the example on page two. We'll go back to the first page later. So on page two, we have uh, two sources which are basically two separate versions of, of one, one Midrash. I'll read it both in Hebrew and in English. This is the Mishnah in Sanhedrin. There's a word missing here, sorry. Um, and in the English, the assembly of Korach, okay, Adat Korach, is not destined to ascend from the earth, as it is written, and the earth closed upon them in this world, and they perished from among the congregation in the next. This is Rabbi Akiva's opinion. Rabbi Eliezer said, of them it is written, the Lord killeth and maketh alive, which is also the, uh, uh, the title of this year, and I hope you'll excuse this uh, uh, ancient English, because... Uh, of course, we also have in the more modern translations, okay, would be God gives life and, uh, and death or takes it away. Um, he brings down to the care, grave and bringeth up. Okay, so, so um, what we basically have here is a midrash on a part of Hana's prayer. Hana's prayer is in Shmuel Aleph, in the second chapter, Perak Bet. And in uh, Pasuk Vav, verse 6, it says, Now, if we would just read the verse in itself, uh, we would probably say, okay, the context here is Hannah was, was barren, she was childless, and it may be, you may be describing her situation as a certain type of, 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 of death, and then when she was given a child, when she becomes pregnant, she says, 
and that God also gives life, okay? Definitely, when you receive pregnancy, when you conceive, when you receive a child, so God gave, gave her life. So she may be referring to that in this verse. But the Midrash does something else with it. And it says um, that Chana, in this verse, in this prayer, she raised Korach and his group, his assembly, from deep down in the earth, from the underworld, where they, which they sunk, sank into right after um, they challenged Moshe in Parashat Korach. And with this prayer, Chana raises them up and they ascend from there uh, up to the surface, back up to the surface. And the obvious question, of course, is what do Chana and Shmuel have, any, have to do with Korach and his congregation? And I think the answer is on two planes. One, which is the simplest answer, is genealogy. Okay, if you look in Divrayamim, in Chronicles, in Perikvav, take a look at Divrayamim Aleph. The first part of the Verimim lists, okay, has uh, many lists here of, of uh, um, the different generations. And Perak Vav is talking about the tribe of Levi, Bnei Levi, Gershon, Kehat, Umerari. That's the first Pasuk here. And if we take a look at uh, Pasuk Zain, Bnei Kehat, Aminadav, Bno, Korach, Bno, Asir, Bno. So there is uh, Korach. And uh, later on, we take a look and we see in Pasuk Yudbet, Eliav Bno, Yeroham Bno, Elkanah Bno. Okay, Elkanah, the father of Shmuel. And then the next Pasuk says, Uvnei Shmuel HaBechol. And something here is uh, missing. And it says, Vasheni Vaviyah. Okay, we know his, his two sons were Yoel and Vaviyah. That's uh, as listed in, in Sefer Shmuel. So, um, so that's the first answer. There, is, there are family ties between Hana, apparently, Hana, her family, it's not her personally, but her husband, Elkanah, and her son, Shmuel, are both actually descendants of Korach, direct descendants. And uh, that could be a good enough reason for Hana to pray for them. Uh, how is it at all possible that they have descendants? Because we know the Torah already says in Sefer Bamidbar, it says, Uvnei Korach Lometu, the sons of Korach did not die. And Chazal talk about this, that in the last minute they decided not to be part of the whole uh, uh, um, mess that Korach made there, and they decided to, to take a step aside, and, and, or they did tshuva, and, and they weren't part of all that group of people that sank down into the ground. Okay, so they, were still, they, they stayed alive, and then they had children, and, and Elkanah and, and Shmuel eventually were born uh, from that line. So um, this is the family connection between Hana and Korach. But I actually think that the real answer is much, much deeper than that. Because even if, uh, even if Hana and Shmuel, or even if Elkanah and Shmuel come from Korach, in terms of the family, well, like I said, they come from Korach's children who decided not to be a part of all that evil that Korach committed uh, for which he was punished so harshly. Okay, so why again would Hana pray for Korach himself and his associates to, uh, um, to undo their punishment and to raise them from, from the underworld? 
So I think there's a, a better answer, and it's deeper and more complex. And in order to uh, see it, I think we need to first take a look at the wider context of this story and see uh, a few difficulties in the psukim. And I will start with, uh, if we go back to uh, Sefer Shmuel, the beginning of Shmuel. Sure. Well, no, no. Apparently, there's no connection between uh, her conceiving and, and, and the, the prayer for Korach. No. Um, according to the first answer, I, you, you could say that she's praying for them because that's her family. It's something that she has in her memory. It's part of the, uh, uh, I guess, the story of the family that everybody knows about. And, and, and so she, at a certain point in history, they, they're praying for their ancestors, even though but, but again, the question is, their ancestors were rightfully punished, so uh, why pray for them, okay? Um, if we take a look at the continuation of the story, we look at... Uh, Paragimel, chapter 3. This chapter tells us about Shmuel beginning to serve in the Mishkan. As you may remember, Hannah vowed that uh, uh, if she will pregnant, be pregnant, her son will be given to the uh, Mishkan, her first son, and she brings Shmuel to the Mishkan, and uh, in this chapter, he starts to serve there. And it says uh, in Pasuk Aleph, okay, He is serving Hashem before Eli, the Kohen Gadol, Okay, the word of God was rare. Okay, a prophecy was rare. rare. And uh, at that certain day, so Eli was sleeping, was lying in his own place, wherever that was. Okay, Eli's eyes were getting weaker and he couldn't see very well. And then it says, And the, the, the candle, the lamp of God, has not uh, uh, been, uh, um, uh, has not, uh, um, been extinguished yet. So Shmuel is uh, lying there, and he uh, hears God call him, and then he runs to Eli. Okay, now um, you may not have noticed something a little bit strange about this description, right? Even so strange that you may ask yourselves if you actually read correctly or heard correctly. Where is Shmuel lying? Where is he sleeping? Inside the Heichal. He's actually lying in, where is that? Is that Kodesh Kodeshim? Where the Aron is, okay? The Aron Abrit, where it, could that actually be? That's very, very weird, okay? Well, how, how, how could such a thing be described here in the Psukim? And uh, the commentators, the Mfashima, were very bothered by this. And they tried to offer uh, various answers. And I'll bring two of the answers. Uh, but both answers need to actually look at these psukim a little bit differently because what I 
as I mentioned, what we call the pshat is that he was actually lying and sleeping inside the Mishkan, inside Kodesh HaKodeshim, okay, which seems impossible. So uh, some of the commentators say that you need to read uh, this pasuk a little bit differently. Um, I'll read it again, pasuk Gimel. V'ner Elohim terem yichbeh u'shmuel shochev be'ichal Hashem esher-sham ha'on Elohim. So they read u'shmuel shochev be'ichal Hashem. You put it into parentheses. And you say, V'ner Elohim terem yichbeh and be'ichal Hashem esher-sham ha'on Elohim is actually referring to the lamp of God which was not extinguished. Okay, the lamp, Ner Elohim, was in the place Bechal Hashem Asher Sham Aron Elohim. Ushmuel Shochev, you should read separately. Okay, that's not the simple reading here. Okay, it's, uh, but uh, it's saying that, that uh, um, the words Bechal Hashem Asher Sham Aron Elohim are referring back to Ner Elohim and not to Shmuel. Okay, so that's, that's one way of interpreting this. Another way is to, is to change the punctuation and to read the whole thing a little bit differently and say, That's one sentence, and you stop, you end the sentence here, okay? The, the, the lamp of God was not extinguished, and Shmuel was, was, was lying down. And then, Meaning that uh, the voice of God that called Shmuel uh, was, was calling him from Heichal Hashem Asher Sham Aron Elokim, from the place, from Kodesh HaKodeshim, where the Ark was. Okay, so you have two separate sentences, and you're reading them, uh, um, as opposed to the, the previous explanation, you are reading them uh, consecutively, but you put the, the period in a different place, and you divide them differently than they are actually divided in the Pesukim. Okay, these are the various answers, and as you can see, none of them are very simple. Okay, but on the other hand, there's no real choice because we cannot really accept that he was actually sleeping in Kodesh Kodeshim. Okay, he's not even a Kohen. All right, he's not even allowed in there under any circumstances, any day of the year. So uh, um, the question is, okay. Let's accept the fact that we need to accept one of these interpretations, okay? I don't even know which one is better, uh, but let's just say that we accept one of them. Um, and we accept it as telling us what actually happened, okay? What actually happened was he wasn't sleeping. Actually, something else happened. But we still have the question, in that case, why were the psukim written in the way that they were written? Okay, why didn't it just simply say, according to each answer, all right, what, what, uh, 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 what the answer means? It could have been much simpler. So we need to say that uh, um, they're like, we need to look at these psukim in a, in a double view. Okay, we need to say that on one hand, there's what actually happened, and that's what the answer tells us, each answer of the Mefarshim. But there's also another meaning, a hidden meaning here. And the Tanakh meant us to, when we read these psukim, to read them, and then to startle for a minute, okay, and some, uh, uh, some type of, of uh, a bell to ring, and wait a minute, there's something 
Okay, something here is not right. Okay, then we'll read in one of the ways that the uh, commentary is uh, suggested. But we still will have in mind what we read at the beginning. What we read at the beginning is something that is meant to stay in our minds in a certain, uh, to be a certain aspect of what's happening here. Not the practical aspect. It's not really happening that he's sleeping there. But we needed, they wanted to plant that idea inside our minds, even for a split second, okay, so that we uh, uh, remain with that with that idea. I want to add to this another pasuk, which appears um, above. If you take a look at uh, uh, the description where uh, Hana brings Shmuel to the Mishkan, and that is uh, in Perik Bet. We'll take a look at uh, pasuk Yudchet, okay, the second chapter, pasuk Yudchet, so go a little bit uh, back to there. And it says, Ushmuel Mesharet et Pnei Adonai Nar Chagur Efod Bad. Okay, Shmuel is serving God in the Mishkan, and it says he is wearing an ephod, right, a girdle, which um, may sound familiar because it's one of the articles that the Kohanim used to wear. Okay, the ephod, and we'll see soon. Uh, um, what this means, but the ephod was uh, is there to remind us of the clothes of the Kohanim. So again, in these two psukim, we see that for some reason Shmuel is described in uh, as if he is a Kohen, or even maybe a Kohen Gadol who can enter Kodesh Hakodeshim. Why? Why is this happening? Why? Why is it? I mean, obviously, is not it's not really what's happening. But why, why were the psukim trying to give us even a false idea, okay, that, that, or, or in a certain angle, to look at this, to look at Shmuel as, as, as a Kohen? Why, why, why is this happening here? So uh, in order to answer that, I'll look at one additional place, and then we'll put it all together. And I want to take a look at the place where um, the messenger from God, the Ish Elohim, in the continuation of Perak Bet, Pasuk of Zayn. Um, okay, chapter 2, verse 27, comes to Eli to tell him of his punishment because of the way that uh, his sons are conducting themselves in the Mishkan. And he says to him, Vayavo Ish Elohim el Eli, Vayomer Elav, Ko Amar Adonai, Haniglo Nigleiti El Bet Avicha, ביותם במצרים לבית פרעו ובחור אותו מכל שבטי ישראל לי לכהן לעלות על מזבחי להקטיר קטורת לשאת אפוד לפניי ואתנה לבית אביך את כל אישי בני ישראל. So he begins with an introduction telling him about how God chose Aaron and his descendants right to, to serve as Kohanim. So he says I, I appeared Upon you in Mitzrayim, and I chose Aaron, and um, I chose him from all the rest to uh, to ascend my altar, laalot al mizbechi, laktir ktoret, to bring incense, incense, to wear an ephod. Remember, remember the ephod from Shmuel. So it's mentioned here. This is what I chose Aaron for from all of the gadim, all of the. 
uh, special clothes of the Kohen, the one mentioned here is the Ephod. Okay, this connects us to that pasuk in, uh, about Shmuel. Laset Ephod lefanai. Okay, so I chose our own uh, for all these things. And what do you do? Uh, Eli and your sons. Okay, it says in Pasuk Aftet, Lama tivatu bezivchiv minchati asher tziviti ma'on v'techabedet b'necha mimeni l'avriachem erishit kol minchat Yisrael le'ami. Okay, the behavior of the sons of Shmuel, which is described uh, above this, um, in the Mishkan, was corrupt and was uh, defiling the Mishkan and the Korbanot. Okay, so I chose you from all of Israel, and this is what you do in my Mishkan. And then the consequence is, Pasuk Lamed, Lachen Neum Adonai Elohei Yisrael, Amor Amarti, Beitcha Ovet Avicha, Italchol Lefanai Ad Olam, Veata Neum Adonai, Chalil Ali, Kemechabdai Achabed Uvozai Yekalu. Which means, okay, he is sort of an oath, right? Neum Hashem Elohei Yisrael, like a vow. I said, your house and the house of your father, uh, the house of Aaron, would serve in front of me forever. But now, this is not going to happen. Because those who honor me, I honor them. But those who don't, I don't. Now, if we would stop here, what's the impression that we are getting? What's happening now in Am Yisrael? A very dramatic thing. right? The whole house of Aaron, the whole Kohanim, are actually being let go, right? They're being fired. They can't continue to serve as Kohanim because of the behavior of the sons of Eli and because of Eli, who, who, who wasn't uh, strict enough with them, right? Who, who didn't uh, uh, make sure that his sons behave properly as Kohanim. So the consequence is very, very dramatic. Now we know that this has not happened. Right? This is not what happened. And uh, until this very day, the Kohanim are Kohanim. They are all descendants of Aaron. But again, we have this uh, uh, type of literary device where the Psukim are giving us a certain impression, okay, that, uh, which, which, is, which is false. But, but it is conveying a certain message. Later on, if you read on, you'll see that the actual consequence was uh, uh, only for the house of Eli, right? They're the only ones that are going to be punished. And there are other families of Kohanim which will take, uh, uh, take charge in their place. And, and we know that later on in history in different points. But the first impression that we get, the way that the psukim are, the, the way the wording here is, okay, is giving us the impression that the whole house of our own, okay, is, is the whole kihuna is being canceled from, from the house of Aaron. And that's, that's uh, uh, very drastic. Now, if you put all, the, all the, 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 these psukim together, then we get a certain picture in our minds that I think the psukim are planting there. And again, it's not a historical picture. It's not a practical picture. It's not what really happened. But it's a picture that the psukim want us to have in mind. And it's a sort of a scenario in which the Kohanim, uh, uh, the Kuna is taken away from the Kohanim, from the descendants of Aaron, and in a, in a certain sense given to Shmuel instead. So on one hand, we have the Psukim giving us the impression that the Kohanim are losing their, 
their job as priests. The priesthood was taken from them, and they would not be Kohenim any longer. On the other hand, we see Shmuel with an Ifod. Okay, again, the connection. And in a certain way, uh, 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 given the impression that he's sleeping in Kodesh HaKodeshim, and all this together, okay, is, give, gives us a, a, a very um, interesting picture. Pardon? Now, um, take that picture, and let's think, does that remind us of anything? And now we come back to Korach. Korach, Shmuel's ancestor, wanted exactly that. Right? That's what he was trying to achieve. He comes to Moshe and Aaron. He wants the kihuna. He wants to be the priest. He, he wants his children to be priests, not Aaron's children. So this is very ironic. Okay, what, what Korach wanted is, in a certain sense, okay, being, it's actually happening. Again, not in the real world, but in a certain virtual reality, in a certain uh, uh, possibility, a theoretical world. Uh, which brings us back to Hana. And uh, like we said, the Midrash is trying uh, uh, to say something about Hana. Hana wasn't actually praying for Korah, right? When she says, Hashem imitu mechaye, when she uh, uh, attributes uh, uh, to God the, these, uh, um, uh, uh, the, the, the ability to give life and to take life away, she wasn't actually referring to Korach. But the Midrash is saying, if we read the story in its wider context, okay, there's a certain truth to the fact that in the generation of Hanan and Shmuel, something like Korach's plan could actually take place. But why should it? Again, Korach was evil, and he received his punishment because he, he uh, uh, his what, what he tried to do was wrong. And God says that he was wrong, and that's why he, and, and since he, he had a chance to, to, uh, um, to repent, but he didn't, and, and, and then he, he got his punishment. But the interesting thing is that I think in any claim, even if it's coming from the wrong motives, there is always a kernel of truth. I think Chazal realized that in the claim of Korach, Something there is true. Not what Korach is actually thinking of, because Korach is, is, is actually making his claims out of envy, and uh, uh, they weren't justified. But a certain kernel of truth exists there. Why? Because if you have a dynasty, if you have Kuna uh, given down, generation after generation, and it just goes down from father to son, Inevitably, at a certain point, some of the people who receive it will not be worthy of it, right? Because they're just chosen. They're not chosen for their virtues. They're chosen because they were born in a certain family. So you will always have people who don't deserve or are not worthy of the position. And uh, that's the kernel of truth in what Karach is saying. Now, when Karach says it, it is not accepted, again, because of his evil motives, and Korach is punished. But comes a certain generation when you look at the Kohanim and you say, wait a minute, this is what Korach was talking about. Look at those sons of Eli. Look at what they're doing with their position. 
Look at the way they're taking advantage of their position in order to defile the Mishkan and take the Korbanot and eat them like their meat in the market and all the other evil deeds that were taking place there. And when that happens, I don't think the Midrash means that Korach himself was ascending, but something that, 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 that truth was con- that was contained in his words or behind his words actually rises up to the surface. And it, it, it is sort of, uh, uh, it, it receives uh, some kind of appearance inside the words of Hana. Not necessarily consciously, okay, maybe unconsciously. But the connection, Hana being, the descend, uh, being married to the descendant of Korach and her son Shmuel as the descendant of Korach. And the irony of Shmuel being described as though he is a Kohen Gadol, even though he really isn't. And the Kehuna being described as if it's being taken away from Aaron's family. Okay, all that together is conveying the message that in certain generations, uh, uh, again, that kernel of truth in Korach's claim is also something to pay attention to. And I don't think it's incidental that Chazal are bringing uh, this idea here. Because in the generation of Chazal themselves, they also saw a similar phenomenon. Because Chazal are uh, generations after uh, the destruction of Bait Sheni. And Bait Sheni was destroyed. I mean, the common explanation that we know and we are now in these days here. So uh, we talk about Sinat Chinam. But we also know from uh, many places in Chazal and also from historical uh, descriptions in Josephus, we know that, uh, that the priesthood, the Kehuna, was corrupt at the time, at the, uh, in those last years of the Second Temple. And the Kohanim were this very, very wealthy elite taking advantage of the rest of the people and taking advantage of their uh, status because they had a lot of money and buying the Kehunah Gedola with money. And we know of sources in Chazal which uh, talk about uh, cases where two Kohanim came and the highest bid won the Kehunah Gedola and then the actual Kohen Gadol was really unworthy. He didn't even know what to do on Yom Kippur. Because if you look in Masechet Yoma, you see that some, in, during some of the years on Yom Kippur, the Chachamim have to explain to the Kohen what to do, what he's exactly expected to do on Yom Kippur, not only what he's expected to do, but also what, what, what a cow is, what a goat is, what, what the different animals are. I mean, because he was, he was in a different world, and he, didn't, he, he really wasn't, he just bought it because he was the wealthiest. So, so we see that, during, that Chazal are very familiar with, with this uh, situation in which the Kehunah, because it is just given down from father to son, it's handed down in that way, and, and sometimes in certain generations, uh, that'll be very problematic. And when that happens, so Chazal say, okay, so um, maybe something else has to, be, uh, has to replace them. Not maybe in history, not historically, not practically, the Kehunah remains in, in the hands of the Kohanim, but at least an idea needs to exist in which uh, uh, we can see a certain solution to this. So that's uh, uh, the first Midrash here. And I think the uh, important point uh, for this year is that we began with this Midrash about uh, part of Hana's prayer, which seemed to be something uh, uh, 
um, that, that we, very hard to see the connection, right, between the story here of Korach and this whole story of Hanan and Shmuel. But we read, when we read the wider context here carefully, we saw in a few psukim, uh, if we read them carefully, if we take a look at them, if we actually listen to what they're saying, we see that there are a few ideas here and, and, and the whole picture was created, which is actually giving us a, a very important message, uh, which not only Chazal are saying, but it's actually rising out of the psukim here. And I think that's what Midrash does. Uh, so uh, let's take a look at a few of the other Midrashim here. Let's go back to... Um, you know, before we do that, let's look at page 3. One last Midrash in the context of, of what we just talked about, about uh, Hanan, Shmuel, and Korach. Uh, I'll read it just in the English uh, version. For this child I prayed. Rabbi Lazar said, Shmuel was guilty of giving a decision in the presence of his teacher. For it says, And when the bullock was slain, okay, the par, which they brought, and the day Shmuel was brought to the Mishkan, the child was brought to Eli. And the Midrash asks, what's the connection between these two parts of the Pasuk? Because the bullock, the par, was slain, they brought the child to Eli. What it means is this. Eli said to them, Call a priest and let him come and kill the animal. When Shmuel saw them looking for a priest to kill it, he said to them, Why do you go looking for a priest to kill, the, to kill it? I think it would be more precise to say to slaughter. Okay, the shkita. The shkita may be performed by a layman. And we know that's the halacha, right? We know that according to Chazal, shkita kshira bazar. Shkita can be performed by a czar, by a person who is not a coin. That part of sacrificing the animal does not necessarily need a priest to be performed. So uh, that's what Shmuel is saying. They brought him to Eli, who asked him, How do you know this? He replied, It is written, The priest shall kill. That's not what it says. It says, The priest shall present the blood. The office of the priest begins with the receiving of the blood, which shows that the shechita may be performed by a layman. That's a midrash. These are the first psukim in the book of Vayikra. He said to him, You have spoken very well. But all the same, you are guilty of giving a decision in the presence of your teacher, and whoever gives a decision in the presence of his teacher is liable to the death penalty. Thereupon Hannah came and cried before him, I am the woman who that stood by thee here, etc. He said to her, Let me punish him, and I will pray to God, and he will give thee a better one than this. She then said to him, For this child I prayed. Okay, so she's not letting go. So um, this is again... A midrash which shows the conflict between Shmuel and Eli, where uh, this is a, a, a rabbinical halacha, this is a halacha of Chazal, saying that the shechita can be performed by a person who is not a Kohen. But the Kohanim, at the time of Bayat obviously disagreed, and they wouldn't let go so quickly and allow part of the avodot, part of the uh, sacrificing of the animal to be performed by people who are not kohanim. So uh, Chazal picture this as, as, as if it's uh, a discussion or an argument between Shmuel and Eli. And, and Shmuel is actually saying not everything belongs to the kohanim, and Eli wants control of everything. And I think what stands behind this discussion is again... The, this conflict between the Kuna at the time of Eli and the concept that 
under certain circumstances, it may be taken away from them, at least partially, or at least uh, theoretically. Okay, so this joins the rest of the Midrashim here uh, uh, as part of the larger idea. Okay, so now let's go back to the uh, first page. And we have here uh, the Gemara from Masechet Brachot, which brings us uh, two different Midrashim. We'll start, again, I'll read it from the English, and we'll start with the first one. Uh, and he, she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, which in Hebrew is Hashem Tzvaot. Okay, she's Chana uh, uh, in her prayer, in her, her initial prayer to God says Hashem Tzvaot. Okay, he, that's the way she, she turns to God to ask him for uh, a child. Rabbi Elazar said, from the day that God created his world, there was no man who called the Holy One, blessed be he, Kadosh Baruch Hu, Tzvaot, okay, the Lord of hosts, until Chana came and called him Tzvaot. Said Chana before the Holy One, blessed be he, Sovereign of the universe, of all the hosts and hosts that you have created in your world, is it so hard in your eyes to give me one son? And then the Midrash brings a mashal, a parable. To what may this be compared? To a king who made a feast for his servants. And a poor man came and stood by the door and said to them, Give me one piece of bread. And no one took any notice of him. So he forced his way into the presence of the king and said to him, Your majesty, out of all the feasts which you have made, is it so hard in your eyes to give me one piece of bread? Okay, this is the, uh, the mashal, the parable. So, uh, uh, if we compare this to the story, it raises a question. And the question is, why are all the details or the elements here needed? The idea is that Chana is approaching God. And that's a bold move, okay, to approach God, especially at that time for a woman in the Mishkan. And uh, uh, she approaches God directly. Not so simple. But that's what the Midrash is trying to say. So why do we need all the details here about her discussion with the servants first? Okay? That doesn't appear in the Psukim. In the Psukim, she just goes directly to God. And she's speaking to God about this. Okay? Where are the servants? What do the servants in the Mashal uh, stand for? So uh, I saw an interesting... A piece on this Midrash by uh, Simi Peters in a book on Midrash, a very good book uh, uh, on Midrash indeed. And, uh, and she says if the, the, the Midrash is not just reading this specific pasuk where Hannah approaches God and is praying to him. It's reading the wider context. It's looking at the whole story. And what happens earlier in the story? She doesn't just come to the Mishkan and go directly to God without passing go and collecting $200. She uh, actually first speaks to her husband, right, to Elkanah, and she's miserable. And she has this whole discussion with him, and she has this whole interaction with, with her sister, with Pnina, right? And her sister has many children, and, and that makes her even more miserable because they're not really sympathetic. I mean, Elkanah tries to be, but he's not really helping her with what he's saying. He's not saying, okay, uh, I, 
we'll do our best so that you have children and I understand why this is so terrible for you. He's saying, what do you need children for? I'm good enough for you, right? So it's, it's just between me and you. And uh, Penina is even doing worse, right? She's really mocking her there and, and, and uh, uh, humiliating her. So um, makes Hana even more miserable. And that's the first part. And that actually is uh, the part in the mashal with the servants. So this poor person comes to the door and he sees this great feast. So of course, he's not going to go right up to the person making the feast in the beginning, to the king. He first tries to interact with the servants and he tries to get their attention and to say, you know, you're eating so much here. Can you give me just one piece of bread? But nobody pays attention to him. And the parallel to that is Hannah's interaction with Elkanah and with Pnina. And when that doesn't work, that's what drives her in the end to go and to approach God, right? And, and, and what we see here in, in, the, uh, in the Mashal is that um, the simple interaction with her surroundings is so difficult and that, that gives her the courage to, to, to approach God. Okay, so the Mashal, the, the, the nice thing that she's saying here, I think, is, is that you really need to read the wider context that Chazal aren't just, it's not the Pshat of the Pasuk, but it's, the reading really arises out of the wider story here. But I want to take this one step further. And I think this also may be connected to the previous idea that we talked about when we uh, spoke about the previous Midrash about Korach. I think we can make a comparison between Hannah's interaction with her family and Korach's interaction with Moshe. Because in both cases, there is envy. Except there's a very big difference. I think Hannah's envy is justified. Her feelings are recognized. The fact that she has to live in a house with her sister having so many children there the laughter, the, 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 the games that they play, any, everything that a mother does with her children. And she has to watch this day after day and come to the Mishkan with everybody, okay, and sit with everybody and they're giving out all these uh, uh, plates to the little kids and she has just her own. And that I think, I think uh, uh, the jealousness, the envy is, is recognized as being okay, as being something that, that, uh, uh, that's natural. And I think that's what really reaches God in this case. And that's what gives her the courage. And this is, is compared to Korach's envy. Now Korach has so much. It's true. What Moshe is actually telling him is true. You're not number one. Okay? You, that, that's what you really want. But God gave you, so, you, he gave you... He did give you a special status. You're a Levi. You're serving... In the Mishkan, you're doing uh, uh, very uh, unique things to serve God. And you're very wealthy. But that little part of being number three, not being number one or number two, was too hard for him. So in that case, the, the, the envy was, was unjustified and Korach is punished. But the thing is that this emotion of envy is very tricky. Um, and I think that, that part of the message is, I think we all experience envy, and Chazal realized that. And Chazal, I think, are, are trying to be, uh, um, to, just to reach out 
to our emotions and to say, first of all, envy is a natural thing. We're humans, we're people, and we have that. And sometimes it's even justified. And in many cases where it's there, God can really connect to, the, to, to that. It's not always evil. It's part of human nature. Some cases uh, uh, we are required to overcome it because it's unjustified. And in other cases, God can contain it and accept it and recognize it. So I think, uh, again, uh, this touches the wider context here of the story of Korach uh, hovering over this uh, uh, story here. Um, I think we, we see that a lot. I, I have to say we, we live in Katamon. I assume maybe some of you do as well. And, and uh, uh, um, we see so many... Uh, uh, we have a lot of uh, uh, um, connections with a lot of the younger people there who are singles. And, and, and year after year, we see uh, uh, these situations where they have to sit with families and, and, and uh, there are a lot of children there. And, and it's a very difficult situation. And I think, I think it's very important what Chazal are trying to say here, to recognize even those emotions of envy, which are, which are okay and which, which, which are actually, if, if they're directed as part of a conversation with God, with Hashem, they reach Him and, and, and He may accept them. Okay, so I think that's, that's part of what, what, what it's trying to say here. Um, and with that, we'll just go to the last uh, part here of the Midrash. And it says, If you will indeed see, Rabbi Lazar said, Hanas said before the Holy One, Blessed be He. Master of the universe, if you will see, it is well. And if not, you will see, I will go and meet with someone else in private in the knowledge of my husband Elkanah. And we shall have been alone and we, should, and we shall have been alone. They will make me drink the water of the suspected wife, the sota. And cannot fo- you cannot falsify your law, which says, and if she is innocent, she shall be cleared and shall conceive seed. Okay, what is this uh, talking about here? This is a very uh, uh, strange midrash, right? Okay, Hana is actually threatening uh, to do a very bizarre thing. Okay, she says, if I will not conceive... Uh, I'm just going to go and be in a certain confined place, right, with a person who's not my husband. And then I'll be suspected of adultery. And that makes me a sota. And then I'll be brought to the Mishkan. And I'll have to drink the water. And since I'm actually innocent, I will receive the the reward that the uh, uh, innocent woman who was suspected of adultery receives, right, that she will conceive. Okay, so this is like, I mean, it's brilliant. But, but uh, it's very, very strange. Okay, why, why would Chazal think of such an idea? Who gave them such, such a, a strange idea here? And again, I think that the solution is in rereading the Psukim. Because let's look at the, the, at the, the story here. Um, I won't read it. We don't have a lot of time. And I won't read it in the Hebrew, but I'm assuming most of you are familiar with the story. Chana in the Mishkan, when she can't stand it anymore with her family, right? She approaches God and she starts praying. And Eli is watching her. And what goes through his mind? What does she look like? A dr- right. And she, he says to himself, okay, all right, the, she's, she's not really uh, uh, 
normal here, right? She's drunk, and what, what is all this mumbling here, right? Okay, and, and he approaches her, and he says to her, why are you drunk here in the Mishkan? You're defining the Mishkan. Um, put away your wine and stop drinking and stop standing here like this uh, drunk woman, right? Now, I think something about that scene uh, reminds me of the humiliation which the Sota goes through when she's standing in the Mishkan and assuming she's innocent, okay? If she's guilty, then all right, something else. But in certain cases, when she's innocent and the Kohen Gadol is, is looking at her, right? And the whole scene there is very humiliating. And, and uh, um, I think that, that uh, uh, the association of, of being drunk, at least in those times, maybe also today, we're right after Cyprus and everything, uh, is, is there, there's a connection between being drunk, right, and uh, sexual uh, promiscuity, right? It goes together uh, in certain cases. And, and I think that this, this is actually uh, uh, hiding here, okay, in the subtext of, of, of this story, when she is standing there and being suspected of being a drunk, of being uh, 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 so, someone like uh, uh, um, some improper behavior, right? Now, this is very ironic because... Actually, what was going on in the Mishkan, things like that were happening, but not with Hana, with, with Eli's children, right? His sons were actually uh, taking advantage of the women coming to bring their sacrifices. That's what the uh, Pasuk describes later on. And uh, uh, there was a lot of adultery there, okay? Uh, uh, a lot of mention also of food. I assume there was also drinking. And that's what the Mishkan became, at that time. So uh, the irony here is Eli, who is actually responsible for such an atmosphere in the Mishkan, okay, he is looking at Hana and he's actually accusing her of behaving in that way, okay, of being uh, a lightheaded, lowlife, uh, standing there drunk and maybe behaving improperly, okay, so. so uh, if we read that, I think we, we really are reminded of the case of the innocent Sota, okay? Standing there, she didn't do anything wrong, but being humiliated by the, by the Kohen Gadol, okay? And in this case, by Eli. So I think, I think that gives us an idea of where Hazal uh, took this uh, strange and brilliant idea from, okay? When they tell us this whole story, about Hana deciding to pretend to be a sota in order to conceive. Okay, and I, and I, and I think that uh, it, it, it gives us the sense of the irony in the story here and in the way that Eli approaches her and, and, and how wrong it is the way that he approaches her after being responsible for such behavior in the Mishkan, exactly what he's accusing her of. And... and uh, uh, this is another example how the Midrash tells us a story. Again, at first glance, it seems to be so disconnected, right? Something so artificially uh, connected here to the whole story in the Psukim, something from, from a different world. But if you read the Psukim carefully, you really see that it rises out of the Psukim. It's really hidden there, if not in the text, then in the subtext. And this connects us again 
to that larger idea of, uh, that we began with of uh, um, the kuna, the attitude towards the kuna in that generation, and the fact that uh, what Korach was actually, not Korach himself, but what his message was warning of, uh, um, we can uh, reach a situation in which the Kohanim are so corrupt and the uh, positions are actually reversed. Okay, so on one hand we find Shmuel, the desi- descendant of Korach, receiving, in a certain sense, the Kuna in their place. On the other hand, we also find in the other Midrash here this reversal of roles between uh, the Sota and the Kohen Gadol in which the Sota is the innocent one, and the Kohen Gadol is the guilty one, at least it's his responsibility for that type of behavior. And uh, um, so, so we see here, I think, that, that Chazal, reading, these, reading this story, we're very sensitive to uh, the fact that dynasty is not always the best system, and that you need to be aware of the fact that in certain generations there will be wrongdoings in the name of a position that was received lawfully and they're saying that uh, in those situations if someone is, is hurt by that behavior then God interacts. He doesn't stand on the side. And it doesn't matter what the position of the Kohanim is and what their status is. He will see, he will see envy that is uh, uh, a reaction to a real problem, a real situation, and he will have mercy, and, uh, um, and he will punish those who are guilty, um, no matter what their status is. Thank you, and I hope uh, we should know better days than this one, and uh, uh, have Yeshua to Nechamot.